Hi, and welcome to season two of the Early Years Conversation podcast with me, Kate Moxley and Kerry Payne, a safe space conversation podcast for the early years sector where we discuss key topics and experiences. We want to amplify the voices in our sector and tackle some of the tricky aspects of working with children and families. To note, this podcast includes discussion around mental health, race, gender, sexuality, neurodiversity and adversity. And of course, all of the joyous aspects too. Hi everyone and welcome to our episode three of season two. Um, We have a really special guest today, Melissa Blignord, who is a trainee teacher for um, special educational needs and disability and developmental differences. And Melissa herself has a diagnosis of um, dyslexia and ADHD. And so we asked her to come onto the podcast to talk about our neurodiversity, our learning differences, and how the way we have been um, treated um, and how that's impacted our perceptions of our own learning differences. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Just a little apology before you listen. Um, I unfortunately had every notification on every technological device on the day of recording. And so you hear me have a slight sensory meltdown Um, because people kept emailing me but we hope you enjoy um, and please do leave feedback on our profiles okay so today we have melissa as our guest and she's going to introduce herself and and give a bit of an overview in in a moment but i wanted to start today's podcast just kind of giving you a bit of a overview of what we're going to be talking about so We're going to be looking at and talking today about um, our experiences of being neurodiverse, so having our own learning differences and difficulties. Sometimes it can be very challenging for each of us. And we just wanted to talk today about how our own special needs, I suppose, how our own special educational needs as well, how that has impacted on our well-being and also thinking about how it's impacted on the roles that we do and the fact that we work in education um, and kind of what we feel is what we feel needs to be understood in terms of developmental differences and why we have to start taking a celebratory approach. So we're going to start today's podcast with just a little bit of an overview. Um, and I do apologize, my emails have already started pinging, um, but just a little bit of an overview of each of our experiences um, of our neurodiversity. We each have our own stories. Um, so yeah, we each have our own stories. So we're just going to kind of give a short introduction. So me, Kerry, you will have heard me talk about it before um but i have a diagnosis of adhd i got an adult diagnosis so i um after many many years of desperately searching for answers um experiencing lots of anxiety and or what i thought was anxiety and what i now think was actually adhd and but feeling anxiety feeling depressed feeling as though I didn't fit in anywhere and um, experiencing really intense rejection sensitivity. So just feeling, I think to kind of really sum it up, feeling really out of place. 
And then I have the H in ADHD. So having a lot of hyperactivity. And that for me was really difficult because if you meet me, I don't necessarily always present as hyperactive, but it was more about that internal um, that internal hyperactivity. And if you think about the amount of pings you can probably hear in the background of emails, that's what my brain is like. It is always pinging with thoughts and racing ideas. Um, and so that, <laughs> Can you, can you hear those emails literally they are going off everywhere I mean, as you said that there was a really extra loud one i'm thinking maybe we we you know i smashed my computer screen gosh sorry it's fine it adds it adds it's to a way to make your point that your brain is pinging i feel like you've planned it have you got nick sending you messages ping ping <laughs> Oh, it's so annoying. It, honestly, I thought that I was like this really cool, like robotic high tech woman with me free screens at home, because obviously I was like, I'm going to be really good when I'm um, doing work from home. I'm going to have different and um, different sources of technology, different light streams. It literally has just become me sat like wired in the corner trying to manage all these different screens. And um, so but that's an example of uh, basically my hyperactivity is that I'm constantly got lots of things on the go always spinning plates um but for me a lot of my hyperactivity is very internalized and so i i really really struggle as well with something um called sensory processing differences or disorder um and i become very kind of triggered by sounds in the environment i become very overwhelmed and um, it really can it can really be disabling, to be honest. So, for example, pre-COVID, when we were allowed to socialise with other humans, um, sitting in a group of people, I physically could not focus on a conversation because I could hear all the little kind of niggly bits around that conversation. Um, and so often got... Um, often got considered rude when I was growing up because people were like, oh, she's a bit weird and a bit kind of um, a bit stern. But it really was because I was trying to manage all those things. And so getting an adult diagnosis has been really helpful for me to understand why I didn't feel able to fit in. So that's me. And I'm going to hand over to Melissa to talk about to talk about her, um, to talk about her um, situation while I just go and smash my emails. Oh, thanks, Kerry. And thank you, um, Kate and Kerry, for having me. It's really lovely to connect with the both of you. Um, listening to Kerry just, I'm like nodding my head the whole time because I'm like, yes, I agree. Same here. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia when I was really young. So probably in the beginning ages of my primary school um, career. And um, it all started with kind of my teachers not really being able to identify at all what I was writing down. And I think that is the biggest misconception when it comes to dyslexia is that a lot of people think that it's just got to do with reading and writing, but it is so much more than just that. Um, a lot of the time it comes down to things that you can't necessarily identify um, in terms of you know, visually, it's a lot of things that's going on in our head in terms of our executive functioning, our sensory processing, um, our working memory. But um, I'm very thankful that I did get an early diagnosis and my parents were very um, nurturing. I grew up in a home where it wasn't really frowned upon. They were quite happy for me to go to therapy for two years. I saw a 
speech therapist for two years, um, which was helpful. I think coming home from school, there was always a big difference because home would always be quite nurturing. My parents would always celebrate, you know, my hyperactivity, me coming home very excited with, um, you know, stories from school and um, to, you know, celebrate. They always made a point of celebrating the work that I did, whether it was, you know, not that great or whether it was amazing. They always celebrated it. Um, I think the difference was when I was in school and teachers would constantly say at parents' evening, she's a lovely girl, but she's just very talkative or she's just a busy bee and she can't sit still and she needs to focus more. It was very much, um, you're lovely, but you need to focus more. Or There was always like, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And then you will be the best academic person in the class. Um, so even though my teachers knew that I had a diagnosis of ADHD and dyslexia, I think they didn't fully understand it. And I think early in the night in the early 90s, um, yeah, because I was born 1991, so I'm just trying to do maths now. It's early 90s, right? I think so. <laughs> um, in the early 90s, I think there was still a very they didn't really understand ADHD and what it encompasses. And they didn't really understand that there's a lot of emotions connected to it as well. It's not just um, hyperactivity or daydreaming. Um, although that was something that was very obvious in my behavior, but there was a lot more to it. And I think it totally makes sense why I really found it not difficult to make friends but friends were like my everything I was so it was so important for me as a child to have friends and uh, friends and maintain these relationships I would put friends above anyone else and I remember my parents actually telling me like your friends can't be so important because I really wanted to be like a people pleaser I wanted everyone to like me I wanted everyone to accept me and you know if there was a little bit of rejection it would absolutely crush crush me and even as an adult I'm still like that and I'm still trying to not unlearn but be more aware of my own habits when it comes to um, how sensitive I am towards certain things that it's actually me just being very sensitive about it but also my sensitivity is valid it doesn't mean that it just needs to be swept under the carpet because these feelings are still very real um so yeah that's just a little bit about me I really feel like ADHD, my ADHD and my dyslexia there's a lot more um, celebration than the negatives obviously there are a lot of um, I probably shouldn't say negative but there are a lot of cons difficulties with having it but I also really love the fact that it does make me so creative and bubbly and um easy to get along with so yeah that's just a bit about me and my differences it's just so interesting hearing both of you speak and I suppose hearing kind of different perspectives so I relate to so much of what you've both said and we did like an introduction chat with each other earlier in the week to just kind of me and talk things through and um in that that, that first chat, I was just completely overwhelmed with emotion talking to both of you because um, I was 
I'm 40 years old, I was 40 last May, and I got a diagnosis of dyslexia um, in 2019. Um, and so very, very recent really. And um, I'd, the, the way it was brought to my attention was um, at uni, my early 30s, when my uni tutor said, to me actually in, in my like informal interview for my BA honours had I ever had any challenges or difficulties at school um, and I was like you know and she kind of talked to me about how sometimes when you're speaking she said um, it's like you're searching for a word she said um, she said does it feel like you're in a library and you're trying to look for a word or something to say and you can't quite find it and I was like well yeah, it does feel like that, but I had always associated that with a lack of confidence. So um, certain words I would always feel unsure about if I was saying them correctly or, um, so I felt that it was just a lack of self-esteem or lack of confidence for whatever reason, because I'd never felt very academic throughout school, all of those things. I can remember walking out of that chat with her and bursting into tears because my overriding worry was how am I coming across to people like am I, have I always come across in this way and I can remember being like you know absolutely you know overwhelmed and really upset about it and came home to my husband and he was like don't be ridiculous you read so well you're really English is really strong you know I phoned my mom and said mom what do you think my tutor thinks I might be dyslexic did I have any struggles in school and she was like well apart from the fact that you know yeah, they ripped you off me screening every day until virtually the end of junior school. No, I can't think of anything. And I was like, you know, now with my early years head on, I was like, surely that was <laughs> maybe a, my, my seven year old daughter is still screaming to go to school every day. What could, you know, be the issue? And then um, I, I just, just carried on with it. I didn't get and get a diagnosis, but then in the work I'm doing now, I obviously do lots of public speaking. I deliver training in front of like, usually actual real people and faces. And sometimes what happens for me is like, I feel like I'd, I've got no information in my head. I still feel like that a lot now. Um, and sometimes I, I start speaking, I'm like, oh, I know this stuff, where does it come from? And and actually what, what happened was in the work I was doing, I was getting quite flustered about different things and it was beginning to really affect me so like writing blogs or putting out social media posts to other early years professionals and people you know in in work and education and of course I've got spelling mistakes or my grammar is wrong or there are words missing entirely I don't think I've ever managed to tweet something that hasn't got a spelling mistake or an error in it and then I um my mum got some old school reports out and when we read through the school reports, they said things like um, that I struggled a lot, that I acted, that I put on little acts pretending not to understand, that um, I was fussy and inattentive, I had slow progress, I was well behind um, children, you know, um, within the year. And so like all of those signs were there. And I was like, look, I got them with my mom and I was like, mom, look at all this stuff in here. And so then I thought, right, I'm just gonna go and have this assessment. So I did. And he said to me, you're definitely dyslexic. You're probably also, you probably also got dyscalculia and possibly dyspraxia. And so try, I'm obviously trying to like make this smaller and not ramble on too much. 
much. But for me, as a 40-year-old woman, how it's affected me throughout my life is I've got really bad short-term memory. So processing information, reading instructions. I have to learn things with my hands and work out how to do them. I can't read instructions. Um, even when Kerry and I are recording podcasts, I forget what the hell I'm talking about. have to write little notes down to myself. Um, and as I can be talking, I can like lose a whole train of thought. And so there are so many things that I thought were just, um, you know, just things I wasn't very good at. I was always told I wasn't very academic. I just thought like I wasn't very bright. Um, and, you know, as I've got older and, and like the other day, Kerry introduced me um, as having learning differences. And like when we had our chat earlier in the week, it was like, we're all neurodiverse. And I'm like, oh, that's me. I've got that. What, for want of a better term, is a label, but I have never attached that to myself um, to, I suppose, think positively in any way, but to highlight what you were just saying there, Melissa, around actually the skills and strengths that I have, you know, actually I am a very creative person, even though I spent most of my life thinking that I wasn't. I have really good ideas and too many ideas sometimes. Um, I'm very much like you, I'm a people pleaser. Um, I thought that was because I'm a middle child. I, I want very much for people to like me. Melissa's pointing, saying me too. Kerry's a middle child too. So if you're a middle child, you tend to be a people pleaser by nature. Um, and, you know, and also I think that and it was a big powerful thing for me in my 30s when I began to experience depression and anxiety that started to really impact on my life because I realized I was doing so many things for people not just at work being that yes person but in my my self-worth was developed by doing things for other people so my friends will tell you I'm a very thoughtful person I you know and and I've kind of prided myself on that characteristic so um but I was that was how I was gaining a sense of self-worth and self-esteem. And then I was getting to a point where I was starting to resent everyone around me because I'm so thoughtful and I wasn't getting that back. But actually that had come from that lack of self-esteem that, that had, had happened throughout my childhood. And, and now I read up around, um, especially um, a, a book that I've read most recently by Neil Alexander Passe, which is around dyslexia and mental health. And just actually, you know, the emotional and social impacts of dyslexia and how their negative effects are diminished by people right from school age all the way through as adults. And even when I got a diagnosis, um, as I said, a couple of years ago, it was like, are you joking? So you've got an anxiety, an anxiety disorder, depression, and now you're telling me you're dyslexic. Have you got anything else? Do you want to have any more other conditions? And so I think it was something I just dumbed down again. So um, understanding, I, I, for me, I think about how many people in early years, or indeed the children that we care for, may have these challenges and learning differences, and we're not taking them seriously. So, so yeah, I mean, to have this space to talk about this, I just wonder how many other early years practitioners, educators in whatever capacity they're working in will just be like Kerry's emails earlier, ping, 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 like this sounds like me and I can relate to this so much. 100% I think that's a, a really good point and I think hearing because I, you know I think it's we've always aimed to be honest on this podcast and I think 
we've had a bit of an emotional journey this week. So we met with Melissa and, and I've met with Melissa before we did a live together a while ago. And we're always, we're always having an ADHD moment in the chats kind of, oh, are you finding this difficult? Or also the celebrations as well. And I think this week has been quite emotional because I think A, um, having those conversations with you, Kate, around this concept of neurodiversity or, and not even neurodiversity, because I think that in itself is something that somebody um, who is obviously diagnosed with a special um, need or a learning difficulty or, or disability, that's something that you, that's a journey that we all need to go on to decide whether we want to fall under that umbrella. But I think what the kind of emotional aspect was is that this isn't a bad thing, you know, having a learning difference is not a bad thing. And, and I love the way when I always um, speak to Melissa is that we do talk around, wow, like our ADHD is our identity. It makes us who we are. Um, and I think for the three of us, and, and again, obviously we'll, we'll go around and have a chat about that. But I think what we do is we think about our adult experiences. We think back to our childhood experiences, which it all seems as though we've been defined or labeled and um, with these kind of undesirable traits but almost those traits and those undesirable aspects are part of who we are and are actually good traits they're not it's not bad to be a busy bee it's not bad to be chatty it's not bad to act and to to perform you know kind of your understanding because that is and I, it always comes back to this thing the purpose of education is to find out what you are good at and it's within the educational space, and, and this is what we really wanted to speak to Melissa about, but it's within that educational space where you should be able to practice different identities, you should be able to explore um, things that don't feel right, things that you want to test out. Like we talk about the importance of children testing out their ideas when it comes to academics, but we don't let them test out their pet personality, yet the, the teaching environment is where we should give them that spa safe space to do that. So I think kind of we've all had such kind of diverse experiences across our lifespan um, and I think language has come up as a big one and I think the thing that I wanted to ask you Melissa is what do you think about lang the language of sender inclusion and um, what impact does you think do you think it has that we still seem to be very much kind of um, stuck in this very deficit framework with language it, SEN is still spoken about in such a negative and deficit way. Um, so what's your experience of that? How, how does that, in terms of your teaching experience as well? Wow, this conversation is so wonderful, but also so heavy. I can, I sit here listening and I like tear up because I'm like, oh my gosh, like, oh, so many emotions come up from childhood. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, I think, when it comes to when we, whenever we discuss inclusion and um, special educational needs, there is always it's always kind of presented in a like you see deficit way. And a part of me is wondering: is it because the history and when these when these um, differences, a diagnosis actually got discovered that Back in those years, like many, many years ago, they were still able to use really derogatory, derogative, derogatory, <laughs> oh my gosh, really bad language that we would not accept right now. We would, you would never say any kind of um, words, you know, like 
I'm sure everyone can think of one in their head right now that we would never even say, but those books are actually in text. Those words are in textbooks. So I think from the history of looking at inclusion and seeing and, and special needs is that it actually comes down to the way that it was presented originally. And over the years, it still kind of has that, like, I feel like it's a weighted blanket. It's still heavy. It still doesn't have that, um, that light and that um, positive aspect that it deserves because there is so much good. There is so much positive when we look at our children with special educational needs. And just because they don't really fit in that neurotypical world, it's kind of looked at, mm, something's missing. And we still have people to this day, you know, people that are younger than me that, that think that and that assume that. Um, so it's really interesting. I think that it all originates, the way that people perceive SEND and inclusion, or actually I feel like SEND and inclusion are two different things because when people talk about inclusion, they kind of talk about the entire scope of everything. You're talking about race, diversity, needs, um, home life, whereas special educational needs comes down to a child's um, developmental um, abilities. So the two are quite different. And I know they do get put in the same sentence a lot because, yeah, I'm actually really off track right now. I've just gone blank. So what was the question, Kerry? <laughs> I'm looking at language, but something that you said that was really interesting is, because um, I, I love that concept of that it does feel like a weighted blanket, doesn't it? And the reason that that really speaks to me is obviously I lecture at a university and um, I train people in SEND and I do have those days where I'll go and train or I'll go and teach around SEND and broader inclusion um, and looking at educational inclusion, looking at those intersections of, of gender, race and, and so on and so forth. And I do have that moment where I go, oh, am I still... I'm still having this conversation 14 years later. And one of the big things that always pops up is that language, it's often, it's not intentional. They're not necessarily, it's not educators seeking out to define SEND in a negative way, barely ever. But it's those subtle nuances in language that you have to go, oh, you have to interrogate why you keep saying that. So one of the big things that we obviously talk about in mental health is the fact that people still refer to people as committing suicide rather than dying by suicide. And we have this, we need to really unpick this distinction um, because of that weighted blanket of old and dated language. And one of the big things that I found is um, I was in a, a seminar or a, a webinar and it was an ADHD one. And the people in this webinar kept saying, you know, if you're suffering from ADHD, if you're suffering from it. And I thought, hang on, this is a room of ADHD people coming to be inspired about how to how to effectively um, manage their own ADHD, including the positive parts, but you are assuming suffering. And it really, really wound me up because the only person that should be able to say if something is suffering is the person that is experiencing it. So on a Monday, I might wake up and say, I'm suffering with my ADHD today. On Tuesday, I'll be thriving because of it. But it's that, it's those labels being placed on somebody 
from kind of the outer world and a lot of the things that I've been reading about recently is about how do we center the individual with that developmental difference how do we put them back at the center of the conversation how do we give those people a voice including adults and children because I think it's when you don't feel in charge or in ownership of your own developmental differences that you you do you lose yourself like you become beholden and I think the situation that we have at the moment and the reason that we do see social and emotional difficulties in young children is because they are defined by educators judgments they're not given and coming back to what you were saying before Kate our self-esteem was very much beholden on the judgments that our teachers made about us and so when we walk into our early years classrooms or our you know our um, higher age groups how are we setting up children to feel proud of their whole selves including the selves that might be different and that might present as, as challenges and i think language goes a really really long way um in that so uh, that's kind of where we were at i don't know what you think about that kate and because i know language is a big thing for you as well kate yeah, um, just with regard to obviously mental health and what you touched upon there, something that we teach in the Mental Health First Aid England courses is just, you know, our language matters, our everyday words, phrases, terminology that we use makes a difference. And in some ways we've moved, I think, so much further forward with regard to our language around physical disability um, and yet with regard to uh, mental health, um, it's, it's completely different and just by, you know, one of the biggest reasons are there's less positive phrases and um, we, we you know we don't think about our mental health in term in the same way we think about our physical health and um, we have we, we think of getting rid of a mental illness rather than actually for lots of people they can't get rid of it it's part of who they are as you just said it's like our whole selves and I think that you know I think something we, we might have spoken about recently was you know, when I started working in early years, you know, 24 years ago, the way that we thought about children's behaviour is completely different to what is happening now in our classrooms. So due to a change in our understanding of neuroscience, um, you know, the way we, we understand about self-regulation and all of this kind of change in our practice, I think you've got a blend of old school teachers and, you know, maybe newly trained or teachers coming through with now, you know, a growing understanding of that behaviour is communication. And so if if we've got children in our classrooms who are you know maybe displaying some of the things I said earlier fussy can't sit still what some of us described actually that's telling me something but so many of our teachers you know aren't you know when you look into like dyslexia for example you know it, it's absolutely shocking how much support and training is available teachers uh, quite often are just ill-equipped to deal with this um senko training all of the different things that you would think would be something that everybody deserves to have it, it, it doesn't happen and so um i think you know as we kind of move forward with our practice and our understanding, you know, I talk quite openly, everyone should have mental health training, but surely we should all have training to understand, you know, neurodiversity and we should all understand or retrain around behaviour. Um, 
you know, because things are changing, we're seeing a shift in even things like behaviour policies, aren't we? Gone are the behaviour charts, or so we hope, um, and the clouds and the rainbows to move people up and down, um, and focusing on what children can't do. And it's very much, you know, trying to reinforce, you know, those that positivity, so things that we are good at. But I think that's part of that. I don't know, in this country as well, like we are, we, we focus on the negative quite a lot anyway, don't we? So um, that is just, you know, us as a, maybe us as a society in general, I don't know. Yeah. I what think do you think about our bumblings, Melissa? About? Our, oh, <laughs> I'm just making up new words. Bumblings, it was just like a word for ramblings, bumblings. I think because like, you called yourself a bumble, a busy bee. What do you think about busy uh, being and bumblings? <laughs> um, sorry, Katie. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't understand. I have no, it's to, um, anyone listening to the podcast. It is it is five o'clock on a Wednesday. Melissa has been on her placement all day. I have been in Zoom meetings. Um, Kate has been planning for a project that she's planning for procrastinating so that she can do the project. So I've had some, um, I can see a wall planner in the background. So we've all had one of those really busy days. None of us um, have um, got ourselves ready for this chat tonight in terms of, well, you both look beautiful actually, but yeah, we're all kind of at the end of the day and yeah, um, tired. But we still wanted to be here for this chat. And I think there's been some really important points. But um, I suppose what we're asking um, there, Melissa, is um, you work in, you've worked in mainstream and specialist provision. And I know we've had some very passionate discussions around um, around what we could learn from specialist provision in mainstream environments, because these, those settings are often much more equipped, um, much more equipped in supporting children. And something Kate said about training and that we should all be trained and supported to be um, to be teachers of SEND, essentially. We have this big thing in the code of practice about all teachers are teachers of, of SEND. And I refuse to say it because I think the problem with that is assuming that people naturally have the gifts and skills of teaching children with neurodiversity. I think it's a good way for the government to go, all teachers are teachers of SEND, so we don't need to offer you anything because you should be naturally uh, talented at this. No, we need a government that funds high quality training for mainstream and specialist. So I suppose my question is, um, kind of leading towards the end of this podcast, that's somewhere where we've been talking for a while, but your experiences in mainstream and specialist, what do you think that we need to learn from, from your own experiences? It's so... I love listening to you ladies and I'm literally, I try and make notes, but I'm, I'm a slow writer. So as you guys talk, I can't keep up with my notes. And then I forget about the thing that I, the reason why I wanted to take down a note. So it's just so difficult. But what I wanted to say, Kate, is you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, we should all, everybody should be trained um, within mental health. And also you would assume that training teachers are trained, at least very well informed on specific your, your your learning difficulties. I could tell you now that is not the case, and which is shocking, because you would you would always you will the possibility of you being a teacher and having a child with ADHD, with autism, with dyslexia, with dyspraxia or dyscalculus in your classroom is very high at some point in your career. 
If you do not know how to attend to their needs, if you do not know how to um, or be able to kind of support them on the educational journey, what do you end up doing? You ended up you end up being the abler. You enable them without even knowing by having by giving them a low self esteem. What does that lead to? Ill mental health. What does that lead to? That leads to depression and anxiety. They both go hand in hand, but because no one's really making a point of actually training this and they don't really see, they think that, like you said, everyone should kind of know these things as educators, but it's so specific. And also it's presented so differently with, uh, within pupils that it you can't just have one day on Zoom to learn about you know, a variety of difficulties, which is what I've had. This is my experience of my training years. It would be one or two, three days just looking generally at learning difficulties. But within, when we get taught about English, they don't go and make reference to say, your children with dyslexia will have will find it very challenging copying down from the board. So please give them a printout. Your children will find that font difficult. Please make the font accessible. Think about the size. Don't, do not force your child to come to the front of the class and read out loud. You're breaking their confidence. When they're ready, they will read in front of the class. Small things like that, that actually, wow, teachers are constantly told, do this, do that. But then when we're learning about specific subjects, we don't actually get told, but remember X, Y, and Z with our SEN children. And I feel like that's the main thing that I've kind of been noticing being on my training year. I sit here and I go, oh my gosh, like, what about this? What about that? What about this? And, but um, to get back to your question, Kerry, which is the difference between mainstream and SEN, is ultimately both institutions are there to educate. How those institutions educate are extremely different. And the level of nurture, I feel, this is my personal experience, is different as well. You have people that want to go into school because they want to feel, I mean, they, they obviously enjoy working with children, but they also want to be able to be organized and, you know, train up children and educate them. But also what about those children that might be presenting very different di differently? Um, are you prepared to be their number one cheerleader? Are you prepared to understand their situation? Um, I feel when I had my mainstream placement, it was, it's like two different worlds. And I don't, I've been trying to still wrap my head around why I felt, why I find mainstream so difficult. And even when you have a mainstream school, there is always a same car and they always do talk about inclusive inclusion. It's not inclusion in the sense of it's not the same as ECM because the school is first of all not set up to support our support our learners on all of the on all of the levels that they need in terms of their academics, their emotional regulations, their um, transitioning, the visuals that they need, um, and so much more. So. Yeah, it's very, I don't know, I've been trying to think about how I can answer because I don't want people to think that I have a problem with mainstream. I think because I have my own needs, it would obviously make sense that as an adult, still being in an environment that doesn't um, offer me any anything positive in the terms of it doesn't help me thrive 
it was still difficult. I still felt it, I felt really overwhelmed in the classroom, having planned a lesson, having known exactly what I'm going to do. I didn't enjoy the way that I had to teach a lesson because we were trained to do it specifically. It wasn't the way that I wanted to approach teaching. And I think when it comes to SEN, the way we, it's a bit more, what's the word? I feel like I'm in that library now, Katie, where I'm trying <laughs> to think of the word and I can't think of it, but um it's it's more approachable for that specific pupil um and a one big thing that I found very difficult was the amount of um speed that things needed to go at it was like one day we're doing this next lesson this it was so fast that the next day I thought oh my gosh but we only learned about verbs yesterday and today we're learning about you know x y and z and adverbs and conjunctions and it was like what like, should we not just make sure, should we not continue embedding this? Because I know that there's children in this class right now that still don't know and haven't been able to fully understand or comprehend what we taught today. But it's like, no, because we need to move on because the lesson plan says this and also Ofsted's going to be in and they're going to check their work. And if their work's not checked, then, you know, we get, we get in trouble. And I think the assessments in SEN, obviously there are assessments and they are necessary because we need to see progress. But it's not progress according to um, their book. It's progress according, according to what the child can do. It's not can they read a sentence or can they write an essay or whatever that might be. It's, you know, I feel like I'm going off track now. Um, not at all. I think listening to you speak, it makes me think about why that term like loss of learning at the moment has been floated around quite a lot because even when you know, uh, things have gone off track and um, you've missed out, you know, if someone's been off sick or a lesson hasn't happened or something has meant that they've missed out on a phonics lesson or something, then there's always this, this kind of pushback. But just listening to you speak, it makes me think of uh, my friend, Rachel Macbeth Webb, who's got an outdoor nursery here. And this year she started um, a flexi ed so she has children that come to her forest school provision which is totally outdoors um, and this year well last year sorry in September she's got um, a, a flexi ed now so it's a mixture of children who are homeschooled and, and come to her for part of the week and I went to see her um, because it's completely outdoors in that small window of opportunity we had before we kind of went back into lockdown. And I've had the pleasure of going to visit her outdoor nursery on a number of occasions um, and seeing the children, how they operate in that environment. It's not a rush day. Everything is about the children and everything goes back to their emotional well-being. and meeting Rachel and meeting some of the children who were in um, for, uh, her forest school now and parents who are choosing to home educate and flex with their children because they had some of them had learning differences and they were being set up to fail in a school they weren't they were failing they weren't thriving and yet they'd gone from being told they needed one-to-one -one care um, and that they couldn't actually attend the school without one-to-one -one care to going to having the most wonderful days in the outdoor space everything was set up based on what they could do rather than what they um and what they were able to do rather than what they couldn't do and the change in these children in their emotional well-being and how they thought about themselves and the parents as well who you know 
started to think that their children's future may have been very different. We're now actually seeing there were so many wonderful things. And I think it makes me think that our, our current school system, lots of things need to change in it. Um, and, you know, and, and looking at, you know, setting children up to succeed rather than to fail. But I'm conscious of time. So, Kerry, I'm going to come to you. <laughs> we can't hear you. You're on mute. Sorry, I was having a big chat with myself in the background there. Um, there was a somebody put a tweet out this week and they said about this very much like um, concept that children don't get time to learn. And the word that you used there, Melissa, was that concept of having time to embed what you're being taught um, and what you're interested in and self-directed by. But they were saying the reason kids aren't learning at home at the moment, the reason they're not engaging with these online lessons is because they're not doing it from an in, um, a place of intrinsic motivation. They're doing it for an exam or a test. So it's all that rote teaching. You're now, now trying to feed it to them through a computer, um, but they're not interested. If you were teaching a curriculum, that was truly, truly rooted in self-directed learning, in autonomy, in creativity, um, and in giving the ownership to the child, those children would still learn at home because they would want to get onto the computer and engage. Um, and that's not a criticism to any teacher who the teachers at the moment, the pressure they're being put under. But yeah. how are, children aren't necessarily motivated to learn if they're not learning because they, they feel that it's gonna actually add to their everyday and intrinsic life um, and I know that that seems, seems like a bold claim particularly for traditional teachers who believe that that is the way to do it but the other thing that you you noted there Melissa is that you know we see in specialist provision some aspects of practice that we do need to see that transferred over to mainstream because the reality is more children are being educated in main, mainstream education um, and it isn't about those children having to change it's about our ableist education system whether that be in the early years or, or broader um, and i think that that is a I think that's a harsh reality for some teachers and early educators to have to face up to. But until we face up to it, we're not going to see um, this healthy, thriving development. We're not going to see these changes in language and these changes in mindset. Um, but again, I'm aware of time and I could have spoken to you both for hours on this. I feel like I feel like we've opened a can of worms slightly. Um, yeah. So we're, we're going to end it there, Melissa, and thank you so much for your time. I have a feeling this might be two parts, so um, I might break this up into two parts so our listeners have time to make their own notes. I know you said, Melissa, you were writing your notes, um, but thank you so much for joining us. And we've just got one bonus question, which I don't know if you had to think about any of these, but just to end, what is a mantra that you live by? <laughs> or did you forget to? oh my gosh um okay really quickly I don't actually have a man mantra mantra yeah. um but I've, I was thinking about it and I think that I always know that when you're going through a difficult time even though that that time that time in that moment might feel it's so hard it's so difficult for you right now it does get better and I don't say that lightly it's because that that feeling of that difficulty is so heavy. Just imagine how good it's going to get. And I always think that it's difficult now, but it's going to get better. It's going to get easier. I'm going to get, I'm going to get through this. And I, I don't really have like a saying or anything, but that's something that has kind of pushed me through my, my entire life, even academically. Like it will get better. I can, I can get through this. And 
It's dark now, but the sun will shine. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> a lovely end to our podcast. So thank you very much, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do leave feedback on our Apple podcast reviews. Um, and thank you so, so much, Melissa. We really, really appreciate it. So bye.